0: One of the things I always enjoy hearing from people is how they came to know that Jesus Christ was their Savior, what, the, what their background was, what the, everything, uh, how the Lord saved them. And I know a lot about James because I was there for a lot of it. Uh, James is new to us because he, they moved down here from Connecticut a couple of years ago. I first met James when he came to Preston City Bible Church, I don't know, what was that, 12, 13 years ago? And uh, since then, a lot of things have happened. So um, he has served on the deacon board at Preston City Bible Church. They moved down here, like I said, uh, well, he was almost two years ago, and he moved down here and lived with us for the first three months. So uh, when it came time to expand the board a little bit, uh, I thought the most obvious candidates were both James and Mark Reisinger. So I'm going to ask James to come up and to... um, Introduce himself to the congregation a little more so that you can get to know him and hear a little bit about his background and his testimony. Well,
1: good morning. Good morning. Well, thank you. So, Robbie, I've been uh, looking for an excuse to pull off a pastor's prank for some time. <laughs> And I think uh, this will be a good uh, payback after uh, after I get through this discussion. Um, so it's always um, it's always interesting thinking back on how you got to where you are and the decisions you've made in life. And for me, I'm not a very reflective person. So you know, I take what comes at me every day. I make decisions. I, I'm more focused on what's happening in the future. So to to be challenged and asked to uh, reflect on how did I become a believer, what's the process I went through, what are some of the decisions or things that influenced those decisions, uh, was actually quite a bit harder than I anticipated. (laughs) Um, And and for me, becoming a Christian was something of a, um, uh, it was a tortured path. Not just for me, but for some of those around me. Uh, who participated in the process uh, of, of me becoming a believer? <laughs> um, so, in hindsight, as I thought through it, th- there are several things that have happened in my life that that I sort of think of as as maybe like God flicking your ear, right? There's little ticks that happen during life uh, early on that you don't anticipate influencing you later, but but ultimately they do. And and in my case, there's a few of them. So. I grew up in a very agnostic household. My uh, my father was Protestant, not really practicing. My mother grew up Catholic, um, and and maybe in part because of sort of adolescence rebellion that never went away, or, or uh, partly because she's a very smart woman, uh, she saw through a lot of the issues in the Catholic Church, the priest hierarchy, the public confession, the robotic rituals the things that just stuck with her and, and made it difficult uh for for really belief to enter our house it wasn't something we talked about it wasn't something we did it wasn't something that really entered a lot of our conversations um i'll say we did the obligatory go to church uh christmas eve uh, but that was that was about the extent of it um also early in my life I went to uh, church camp when I was a kid, probably 10, 11, 12, you know, during the summer for a couple weeks here and there. And uh, went primarily because all my friends went. Uh, and, and it was a great time, great camp in the woods, played volleyball and archery, and just had a good time with friends. And and I, I remember, um, you know, being asked, I was sort of the snotty kid, and when they asked me to read from the Bible, it was, I had this perfect monotone, uh, sort of to the rhythm of, of, uh, like, eeny, meeny, miny, Mo, you know? So, like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and my mother is not it, right? So, <laughs> so that was sort of me in Bible camp. Uh, but I do remember what I took away from it, sort of one of those ear flicks, was was the commitment that the people there running the camp had and sort of the conviction and how strong it was um, not something I necessarily thought about at the time, but something that had an impact later on in life. And then, you know, as I grew up and went went to college and, and uh, studied engineering and, and um, you know, thought very much with the worldview perspective. Uh, I read Howard's Inn, the people's, you know, history of the United States. Interesting perspectives. I've, there are lots of perspectives. That's one. Um, it's a, it's an interesting way to look at history. I don't think it's necessarily right, but it was interesting. But I think some of the books that I did read that another one of those sort of ear ticks was, was I read a lot of Anne Rand. I read that whole series, um, and that really stuck with me because there were just principles that, you know, you may not agree with everything that, that she wrote, but there are some pretty strong principles in those stories and in those books about, you know, um, just – the effort it takes to learn something and apply that learning and, and be rewarded for that learning at the end of the day. Um, and those principles you, you see a lot in the Bible as, as, um, you know, as you can imagine. And I can tell you, like most kids getting out of college, early twenties, uh, my mission was clear. Go get a beautiful girl, go get a nice car, and go get rich that was my plan that was my mission so I met the beautiful girl first good right that's the plan meet the beautiful girl so we had a great time she's witty very smart it, it, you know the, the conviction the, the, the commitment that I saw in those early church uh, Bible camp days um, I saw a lot of that in her it was very much reflective one big problem She was a believer, and I wasn't. Uh, And and this led to an ongoing discussion that probably lasted a year and involved lots of people. (laughs) Uh And um, this is sort of the tortured part, right, So of of the tortured story of becoming a Christian, tortured for many of those around me who had to go through the process uh, uh, and be challenged by some of the things I asked and and then the personal challenge upon myself with some of the answers I got. Um, so Laura started to bring me to PCBC uh, I started to listen to the word And and I, I think in reflection I sort of went through a four-step process I, I, It's it's my my NBA My non-believers anonymous four-step process right? So um, I think for me it wasn't about You couldn't come up to me and quote scripture and convince me Because Anyone coming from a worldview, when at, at that stage of my life, first the wall goes up pretty quick, and, and secondly, the the it's it's difficult. What you hear is so you like a book. Oh, okay, I like books. Uh, there are a lot of great writers out there. They have come up with very insightful things to say. Um, so. Quoting scripture, teaching me scripture, w- wasn't necessarily the way uh, that anybody was gonna gonna help me get to becoming a Bible believing Christian. A- and Robbie learned that early, Laura learned that early, Bryce learned that early. Um, but what they did learn early is that is that because of sort of that methodical you know engineer in me, y- you first had to convince me, and this is sort of step one: could there be a God? Right. So we see evil every day. We see beauty every day. Um, It's hard in that environment to really make it clear that could could a God do this? You you know, would a God want people living in shanties or meth addicts on the corner? But but then there's these beautiful flowers and blue sky and, you know, these great things that happen to great people. How how in that environment can there be a God? And that, that was really where a lot of energy went. So guys like Charlie Clough. Um, uh, really focused on sort of the methodical science, uh, with me, obviously with a lot of help from Bryce and Laura, and, and, you know, they were sort of my advers- adversary and, and inter- intercession person in between that process. But, uh, I'll say Charlie did a lot to open my eyes about biology and, and history and, and, you know, meteorology, his field. And, and he really gives you, you know, to answer that question of could there be a God, it becomes more about um, it becomes more about is there a creator? Could, could all of this actually have is there enough evidence that that the world was created by something? and And Charlie did a great job of of working me through that process. Laura and I spent a lot of time on ICR websites you know, researching, well, well, if the Bible was true, what about dinosaurs? If uh, the flood is true, what about geology, right? All, all those m- more methodical questions of is there a creator? Um, and, and you know, there's a couple things that stuck with me, and I'll just share them quick. So things like uh, the Fibonacci sequence. Do you, do you know what the Fibonacci So this is the sum of every number is, is the sum of the two numbers before it, so one, two, three... 5 8 oh, pulpit math 13 21 right so some of the two numbers before it uh it's remarkable how much that that um is re- that math is reality everywhere so if you look at the petals on a daisy the sum is always a fibonacci sequence the number of eyes in a fly's head is always a fibonacci sequence it's incredible to see how these things um, exist. And, and, and if that's true, if, if there's math behind a lot of creation, then there's intelligence behind creation, right? Um, so that one stuck with me. The other one that stuck with me was, um, and I can't exactly remember how the analogy went, but it was something like, um, if, if the earth was created out of nothing, um, the probability of that, now I'm an engineer, I spent a lot of time doing statistics courses in college, so when you start talking probability, it starts to make a little sense. So, so the probability of all of this being created, the complexity of the distance of the earth from the sun and the clouds and the, you know, the atmosphere that protects us and shields us and all, all that complexity, the, the probability of that coming out of absolutely nothing is the same probability of a gust of wind blowing over a desert, and building a a plane, a 737, right? It's not going to happen. You you know, so so those kind of things stuck with me. And and through those efforts, it really answered the, okay, there's a creator. Okay, there's a God, right? So um, step one complete. (laughs) Uh, Step two is really, well, which God, right? There's a lot of them out there. So uh, then I spent a lot of time thinking about um, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and all that. And, and you start quickly. I, I didn't spend a lot of time on this, to be honest with you, because quickly you realize, okay, there's all these gods and those religions. There's all these warring factions and there's no real clear, clear creation. Um, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, right? Um, so sort of discount that. So then you're kind of left with the Quran or the Bible, right? You're sort of left with whatever Muhammad is. or or jesus in the bible um now partly because of the timing of this this was probably 2002 so i wouldn't say um i gave considerable thought to becoming a muslim because (laughs) i won't say that was the that was uh that was acceptable at the time but but I did do enough research to realize that, you know, there are sort of two big surahs that happen in the Quran. There's, there's a Meccan surah. This is when Muhammad was in Mecca, wrote a lot of the positive pieces of the Quran, uh, sort of how do you live your life, all the guidelines, all that piece. Um, fine. Then there's the Medina side, which is when he traveled up to, uh, Medina and, and this is where he became very, um, antagonistic and argumentative and this is the part of the quran that's very um you know anti uh, you know infidel and christian and all that. and again not a clear you know you stand back not a clear picture of a true creation um um and, and sort of resolution of the issues we see in life right good and evil um so that kind of leaves you with with the bible right so then you go okay so there is a God. It's probably the God of the Bible. Then you got to st- spend a little time thinking about is the Bible, does everything else in the Bible make a cohesive story? Uh, and that's where I spent, uh, and that's where Robbie <laughs> and others, Bryce and Laura, spent a lot of time with me trying to understand does the Bible communicate a consistent story? D- does it paint an accurate picture of reality? D- do- does it tie the evil and good that we see in the world together in a in a explanation that ultimately you know you can stand back and go yeah that, that kind of makes sense um so a couple things you know this is now step 3 right so a couple things as as we went through what's unique about the bible um certainly the, the discussion about you know needing a savior kind of unique to the bible um and why do you need a savior because of your sin and and why is there sin and and um, how did sin enter the world? Uh, all all pretty well explained in the Bible, right? Um, holds together tightly. Uh, the other thing I noticed at at this point was um, there was a lot of discussion around sin nature and everybody having sort of a, a propensity for one sin or the other, right? There are there are. Individuals who sort of slide towards, you know, a, a sin related to pride or a sin related to arrogance or lusts or whatever it is, right? And at the time in my life, I, I had become a very young manager. So I was 24 and leading a team in a corporate environment, which is pretty rare to be a manager at, at that point in my life. Um, and And I actually found it. Really useful because what I was looking at as an early manager is how do you motivate people, right? I got all these individuals who work for me. I have no idea how to motivate them. I, I really have received no management necessarily training, um, other than you know an MBA, which isn't exactly the same as doing it. Um, so I was looking for ways to motivate individuals, and I found that that if you can identify what what their propensity is. In their sin nature, are they? Are they? Do they? You know, is there an arrogance piece there? And then you can actually use that as a manager and figure out, okay, if that's your propensity, then I got to find a way to make you visible and recognize you publicly and bolster you, and you love it, right? And you'll work harder. Got it, right? Uh, and then there's other individuals you can you can see different mot- Some are motivated a little bit by greed. That's okay. We all like money. Um so you know you reward them financially, they work harder, excellent. Right? So you start to see some parallels between what you're what I was learning about relative to sin nature and how to sort of apply it in my daily life. And it was reflecting that, hey, these these have to be true because I'm seeing the results work. Um and ultimately made me a more effective manager. So um then as you read through the Bible, you, you also get you know back to that Ann Rand comment about Common themes and principles. You know, there is no doubt there are strong principles in the Bible. Strong principles about work, ethic, and effort and reward, and and you know, in your spiritual life, in your personal life, in your professional life, it doesn't matter. the 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 principles the same. And and being able to see that, you know, here are the things that stuck with me sort of out of the Anne Rand series and reflected into, hey, hey, you know, these are actually biblical principles that apply in a much broader sense, um, was also kind of a, a big trigger for me. So so there is a God. He's a creator. Got to be the God of the Bible. Bible holds together pretty strongly. That's pretty impressive. Um, so then you're kind of left with, well, what sect of Bibledom, right? I mean, there's... Catholics and Protestants and all these warring factions and, and i can 't imagine i can 't even try to keep up with all the different Mormons and this and that right all, all these different groups out there um, and this is where I think the my history with my mother was that sort of god flick right that hey, we shouldn't we shouldn 't be looking for something that has this massive construct and hierarchy and robotic rules and it it shouldn't, and it shouldn't have all this emotion and a party. And it it should really be, you know, if this is true, if this book is God's word, how how do we, it it should be a methodical approach to trying to understand and, and learn what God wants us to know about his creation and about his role and purpose for us. Uh, and the future of, of, you know, humanity. So, um, that was sort of the last piece that, that I really needed, uh, to, to get over the, sort of the hump <laughs> and, and become a believer. And that really, uh, was different about Robbie's church and PCBC, uh, Dave Roseland, who replaced him, um, and, and was a lot of the discussion, what was the content of a lot of the discussion I had, uh, with, with, uh, Laura <laughs> many nights about how you, you, you know, how this, the study of the Bible, is different than most everything else out there, right? To actually just be a Christian Bible believer. Forget all these little sects and they got all these little differences and nuances that they want to argue about. Just focus on the Word. Um, and and that made sense to me. That You know, as an engineer, as a methodical person, that just sort of made sense. Let's just focus on the Word. We don't need all this other baggage and, and exercise um so that 's really you know how I transition from okay there 's got to be a God right my four step process there 's got to be a god he 's created it there 's enough evidence that says there 's a creator um, um which God got to be the God of the Bible because none of the other ones necessarily hold together does the Bible hold together consistently a full consistent story yeah, pretty much and then and then I should say yes, not pretty much uh, <laughs> sorry uh and and then fourth, you know, which, which sort of, you know, sect or faction, uh, you know, don't make it about the factions, just make it about the Bible, and, and it's pretty clear. So, um, you know, for me there was no, I can't point to a date, there was no bolt of lightning, there was no, like, clouds, you know, separating, none of that happened, right? It wasn't an emotional experience. It was a decision like any other decision. I made a decision. I believe that Jesus Christ came to the, came to earth to pay the penalty to die for my sins and provide salvation for me and provide me everlasting life that that's the reality so um i became a believer about 15 years ago now give or take and um and uh been been trying hard to grow my spiritual life ever since uh, i look forward to the opportunity to to serve this congregation um you know if you reflect back on what was my mission after leaving college, right? Get a beautiful girl, get a nice job with a nice car, and be rich. Uh, I think if I reflect back, beautiful girl, no argument there, right? <laughs> um, it, if I look at my family, uh, I consider myself obscenely rich. Uh, forget about the money. Uh, it is, uh, I, I have a very rich life. The car Hey, I'm a bit of a grease monkey. Can't necessarily afford what I want, so I'm building it. I'll have it done in a little. You know, it's been a 10-12 year project, but <laughs> it is what it is. So ultimately, I'm going to hit my goals anyway, right? Um, so I, you know, I look forward to serving uh, serving this congregation, and, and hopefully that gives you a little sense of my background and and how I became a believer and and sort of the process I went through. Um, Robbie, thank you, and I don't know if you have any questions or.
0: I don't have any questions. I know the story.
1: <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you sir.
0: All right. By the way, for those of you who, uh, yeah, I didn't inter- introduce him. Uh, James' wife is Laura. Wait a minute. I'm gonna go to my mic. Uh, James' wife is Laura Birch Bag. Her father's, uh, Bryce Birch, who's the, uh, he does the Dean Bible Ministries website and is the, uh, vice president of dean bible ministry so anyway that's why we're all close what james didn't tell you was that after after he um after he got saved uh he he and laura split up for a while which was really tough i think that was tough on all of us i know it was tough on laura and then one day he called her up and said man i'm really miserable so the last thing i got to do before i left preston city and came down here was to do their wedding and uh so that that was re- really great and then uh a couple of years ago, I got an opportunity to interview with uh, GE Oil and Gas and come down here. And since they were bringing the grandbabies down here, that meant that Bryce and Ann needed to reevaluate their life and be close to the grandbabies. So that just that, that all just made me happy. But it's a great they, they, he has got a great great testimony and and uh, look forward to the way he's going to serve his congregation. So before we get started in our study of the word, now let's just go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word, to reflect upon who you are and what you provided for us. We're thankful for the uh, testimony, the evidence that, that James just gave and the way you worked in his life and, and made the gospel clear to him and his conviction of the truth of your word. And we see that in each one of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that you have made this so clear, so evident because it is a truth. It fits reality because it is reality because you define reality now fathers we study your word this morning we pray that you would challenge us with what we study and that we may see the truths of your word reflect in our own lives we pray in christ's name amen all right open your bibles to matthew chapter uh, chapter 12 i mean, excuse me matthew chapter 13 matthew chapter 13 and we're going to begin in verse 53 Now, what we've seen so far as we get into this is that people and the religious leadership in Israel have come to a pinnacle in their opposition to Jesus, in their rejection of his claims to be the Messiah and his offer of the kingdom. And we're going to shift gears as we go into the next section, starting in verse 53, we're going to see this calcify, this hardens, this opposition, rejection of Jesus hardens through the subsequent events down through about chapter uh, 19, the very beginning of chapter 19. And so what we're going to be looking at this morning as Jesus goes to his hometown crowd and they reject him is a little bit about why people reject Jesus as as the Messiah, Now, what we've seen just as overview in the presentation of the life of Jesus is there's an initial phase for about the first half hour or so, I mean half hour, for about the first half of the story where he offers the kingdom. He's the king. He's offering the kingdom. The message of John the Baptist is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message that Jesus is proclaiming. That's the message he sends his disciples out. And for initially, there's a great reception of the message. I mean, Jesus is also for some people giving away, giving a free lunch. He's got a great welfare program. He takes five thousand people out and uh, feeds five thousand men and their wives and their children. So there's a free lunch. He's healing people. This is a great ticket. But then people begin to realize that 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 was somewhat limited. He's not doing that for everybody. But with the Works of Jesus comes a message, and that message is that these works are simply done in order to confirm who he is, and there is a offer of the kingdom, and the people were to accept it. they were then to um, have lives that reflected their acceptance of him. Now, having those kind of lives wasn't a condition for salvation, but it is it should follow salvation that we live in obedience to him and so. Once things became clear, as they understood what he was saying in the Sermon on the Mount and other things, then there became an increasing reaction and rejection culminating in what we saw in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees say, you really are doing this in your own power, this is in the power of Satan, basically saying Jesus is an emissary of Satan, and this was identified as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, and this is an unforgivable sin. Everything shifts in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus begins to go private. He's training the 12. He's teaching them. He's preparing them for what will come next. Because with the offer of the kingdom and its rejection, the kingdom is being postponed. So something new is going to come in this intervening period. And we studied that the last couple of lessons in Matthew chapter 13 with the parables about the mysteries of the kingdom. That is, previously unrevealed truth about the kingdom. Now that it's going to be postponed, there's going to be an intervening period, and it's going to be characterized by these things. So that brings us up to where we are right now. And in, the, in those parables, Jesus describes how how um, uh, in this intervening period, there are going to be some who respond to the gospel. They'll respond in different ways. Some will respond initially and then fall away. Some might grow a little bit, then they fall away. Others will grow and produce fruit. But there are going to be those who completely reject it, and they do not accept the message at, at all. That theme of rejection covers these next several chapters. Now, the first uh, instance of this rejection comes from Jesus' hometown. In Matthew 13:53, we read, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there, now, where was there? there was in Capernaum. what we see here in this map is the Sea of Galilee <clears throat> and on the northwest shore there was a large commercial fishing village called Capernaum. This is where Jesus lived, where Peter lived. Uh, they're pretty sure they've identified Peter's Peter's house due to graffiti that goes back to the early part of the 2nd century indication indicating that Christians even in the late 1st century were making pilgrimage to this location that this was where there was still a house church meeting that met at the location that was originally Peter's home and then uh, in the early part of Jesus ministry when he is as first Uh, on his first trip around Galilee, he went to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he preaches in the synagogue there. We'll see that that's at the beginning. And now we see at this point, sort of like bookends, he goes back to that same synagogue where he grew up and he is going to speak to to them. Now, what has happened is that when he was in Capernaum, as we look back over uh, the last couple of chapters at the end of chapter 12... He's, uh, he's in a house. He's had this confrontation with the Pharisees, and uh, they've accused him of performing his miracles in the power of Beelzebul. He shuts that down, leaves, goes out of the city there, down by the water, and sat in a boat. A big crowd gathers, and he taught them uh, from the boat, seated in a position of, the, uh, of a rabbi uh, instructing his followers. Then in chapter 13, verse 36... As he has been teaching in parables, he sends the multitude away, and he goes back into the house where his disciples come around him, and they say, okay, you've got to explain this to us because we don't get the parables. So he then began to explain the, par- the, the first two parables to them, and then he went on and gave uh, subsequent uh, parables. And then he leads that house, and that's where we are in verse 53. It came to pass when Jesus had finished the parables, he departed from there... And he goes to his own country. This is his hometown. He goes to Nazareth, which wasn't very large. It was a small town. It might have had a population as large as 150 or 200 people. It's very small. It has a synagogue. In a town that size, it's a lot like a small church. Everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business, and everybody's in everybody's business. So everybody there would know Jesus from the time he was an infant. And this is exactly what we see. He stands up and he teaches in the synagogue, and they're astonished. And the word there means they're just amazed at the authority, at the clarity of his communication. He's not like the rabbis who are just quoting other rabbis. He's not quoting from the uh, the traditions of the fathers, the other rabbis, the earlier forms of the uh, Mishnah, which hadn't been fully put together yet, Uh, he's not quoting from these things. He's just going to the Word of God itself. He's going to the passages in the Old Testament, and he's just explaining in everyday language what these things mean. And it it makes uh, tremendous sense, and they're just astonished at how he teaches. He teaches with clarity, he teaches with authority, as if he actually knows the author of the scripture it's evident within the way he communicates that he knows god that he has an intimate uh, relationship with god and so they are just astonished and matthew summarizes their uh, their response by by his quote they said where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works actually the word man i've italicized it here as it is in most translations they don't say that where did this one where did he where did this guy get this and notice what they say how they how they phrase the question they say where did this guy where did this guy get this wisdom and these mighty works they recognize that what he is saying is wisdom they're not saying this guy's a fool that doesn't make any sense they recognize that what he is saying is wise, and they don 't question the validity of his miracles. they say he 's also doing these mighty works now he hasn 't as we know from uh, parallel passages he hasn 't done very many, hardly any miracles in Nazareth, but he 's been now by the time of matthew thirteen fifty three he 's made a couple of cycles through through Galilee, probably uh, three preaching uh, tours through Galilee. And there have been uh, hundreds, thousands that have come out to hear him. He's performed many public miracles. Probably a number of the people in Nazareth have seen him. They've heard him. They've, they are eyewitnesses of the miracles. So they're not questioning the validity of those miracles. But they don't want to believe it. They 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 don't want to accept him. Now I want you to hold your place there, and I want you to turn to the fourth chapter of Luke. Luke's not hard to find. Matthew's the first gospel. Luke comes right behind, or two later Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And in Luke chapter four, we have Jesus' first visit to his hometown and to the synagogue in Jesus. And there's a lot that I could say about this in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter four. But we'll just hit a couple of high points. Verse 16, we read, He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. That was the parasha for the day. That was the reading. all, All the synagogues have a schedule. Any synagogue you go into on any given Shabbat is reading and teaching on the same portion of Scripture, which is called a parasha. And so he is... Picks it up, and he is reading from Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2, and he stops in the middle of the second verse, because the first verse and half the second verse talk of, really talk about the first coming of the Messiah, what's what's going to be characterized by. And when you get to the second half of 61-2, uh, you're talking about what happens when, when the Messiah comes a second time. So he just stops. And then he says, this is fulfilled uh, before your eyes today, before your hearing today, verse 21. And so look at their response, verse 22. All bore witness to him and marveled. These people are full of astonishment at Jesus, but they're not believing in him. They they marveled at what he said, how he said it, and they say basically the same thing. This is Joseph's kid, isn't it? We saw him grow up. You know, my kid played Little League with him. Uh, you know, when Joseph came to fix our uh, olive press, Jesus came along as an apprentice and helped out. We've seen him, and there wasn't anything special about him. Nothing stood out. He was just like any other kid, except maybe somebody was thinking, you know, he never got a spanking. He never smart-mouthed me. He never back-talked. Maybe a few people thought about that, but they just thought he was a kid like every other kid. That really says a lot, because what the Scriptures teach us is that Jesus came like an ordinary human being. There wasn't anything about the way he looked, this is one of the problems you get in some of the apocryphal gospels about Jesus where he's healing the broken wing of a bird or he's uh, performing some little secret miracle somewhere. That kind of thing never happened. He is just growing up as a human being, dealing with life as a human being. He's fully God, but he enters into human history and he becomes uh, becomes a, a, a human being. So they didn't see any difference, so they they're not... Treating this so, uh, anyway, Jesus goes on and says in verse twenty-five. This is what I wanted to point out here. He says, I truly tell you, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. Now, why is he saying that? Because he's pointing out that the gospel not that gospel in the past, in terms of the Old Testament gospel, came to Israel through a prophet Elijah, but He's, he's making a, a comparison between the negative volition of the folks in in uh, Nazareth at his time, and he's comparing that with the negative volition that the folks in the northern kingdom of Israel had at the time of Elijah. They didn't want to respond to God, and so God had uh, had brought had sent prophets, and He had revealed truth to the northern kingdom, and they rejected it, rejected it, rejected it. And God said, "Okay, it's time to institute." Uh, some, some of the uh, discipline that I promised I would in Leviticus chapter uh, uh, 26, and we're going to have a drought. Elijah announced the drought, and then Elijah had to go into hiding because King Ahab wanted to kill him. He was the number one public enemy, and he wanted him dead because he was blaming all the drought, misery, economic collapse, everything on, on Elijah. And so Elijah finds a place to hide. God takes him. To uh, first to the uh, Carrot Brook, where he's taken care of by a raven, and then takes him to uh, the widow of Zarephath. Zarephath was in the territory of Phoenicians, Sidon. It was Gentile territory. And see, what's happening in when we come to the Mar- uh, Matthew passage is Jesus has already announced that because Israel has rejected him. He's going to be going to the Gentiles. That's why I wanted to go to this. This is a pattern that you see even in the Old Testament that when Israel rejected God and went into idolatry, went into apostasy, what happened? God blessed the Gentiles, and God promised and prophesied in the Old Testament that that would happen again, and the gospel would and God's blessing would go to the Gentiles. So this is what's described in this episode in verses 25 and 26. And then he takes a second episode, verse 27, and said, There were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet. Elisha was Elijah's successor. But no leper in Israel was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile, was cleansed. Because of negative volition, when people decide, I really don't want to know about God, I really don't want to respond to the gospel, I really don't want to believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, what happens is God's going to take the gospel somewhere else. He's not going to force anybody. And that's why again and again when Jesus is teaching, he says, let those who have ears hear. Is If you're really interested in the truth, then listen. But most people who say they're interested in the truth really aren't interested in the truth. Have you ever noticed that? That you, you sit down with somebody and say, let's really try to find the truth about something. And what they really mean is we're going to find the truth that I'm comfortable with. And they don't really want to find objective truth that that no matter what happens, we're going to find out what is actually true. So they've already set up their minds, and they have uh, rejected him. And this is seen in the last verse of this section, in Matthew 13, 58, that Jesus did not do many mighty works there that is in Nazareth because of their unbelief. It wasn't that he couldn't wasn't that there was some sort of metaphysical connection. It's that they don't want to listen. They don't want to believe me, so I'm not going to bless them. I'm not going to give them any any miracles because they're not going to respond anyway. They want the right thing, but they want it for the wrong reasons, and I set the agenda. They don't set the agenda, and so uh, he didn't do any very many miracles there. But their response was basically uh, related to the fact that there wasn't anything special about Jesus. They said, Who is this guy? We know his dad. It was Joseph. Wasn't he the carpenter's son? And his mother was Miriam. We we know her. And look at his brothers, James... Uh, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Now, they were not believers at this time. They're just looking at the family, and we knew his sisters. Now, these are real brothers and sisters, not like the Roman Catholic Church. It says, well, they were cousins or relatives, lived down the street, whatever, uh, because they believe in this thing called the perpetual virginity of Mary, which means she was still a virgin even after she gave birth to Jesus. And uh, yeah the Bible is very clear that he had brothers related to his humanity. They were the, he was just the son of Mary but they are the sons and daughters of Mary and Joseph. So he had actual brothers and sisters. And I've always said that must have been really tough to be a kid in, in that home. It's bad enough. I don't have, I'm an only child. I don't have any siblings. So I just know this by, because other people tell me this. But when you're a kid growing up you, and you have older brothers and sisters, you often hear your parents say, why can't you be like your older brother or sister? And usually you know what an uh, idiot your older brother or sister is, and they're pulling the wool over, over your parents' eyes, but Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus really was perfect. So that makes it infinitely worse because you know you can't even be like him. So your, your, your mother's going, why can't you be like Jesus? And you're thinking, oh, he's just perfect. Anyway, so I say, where did this one get all these things? Who is this guy? Now, what the Scripture tells us is he's the God-man. He's eternal God, and he has to be eternal God. We'll look at a couple of reasons for that. But he had to become a true man because only a human being could die for human beings. Only a human pen, human being could pay the penalty for sin. And this is what Scripture says. A human being, someone who is fully human, had to uh, had to pay the penalty for our sins. And this is what is called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. So we've gone through that a lot, and we're a little short on time, so I'm just going to hit a couple of high points. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that, therefore, in all things, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren. He had to be like us in every single area. He had to be true humanity because he, God couldn't die for us. A human being had to die in our place as our substitute in order for the sin penalty to be paid for. This is clearly indicated from prophecies in the Old Testament. Two specific ones, Isaiah 7:14, 14, is a sign is given, behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now there's debate over the Hebrew word Alma there, but in most places where it's used in the scripture, it refers to a young woman of marriageable age. It doesn't necessarily mean a virgin, but it does mean a young woman of marriageable age. But in most contexts, it indicates some, a young girl of marriageable age who had not had sexual intercourse was was a virgin. The, the core meaning isn't that, but that's usually ha- how it is used in Scripture. There's another word, uh, betula, that sometimes refers to... But she was an older woman in some context. So Alma is the, the best word. And the rabbis who 200 years before Jesus translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek understood that's what this was talking about because when they translated this verse from Hebrew into Greek, they chose the Greek word Parthenos. and, And that means a virgin. Very clearly, it is a technical word for, for, for Parthenos, and so they uh, translate it that way, so they clearly understood this. And besides, there's nothing significant. This is a sign. This is supposed to be big neon flashing lights. That something unique has happened here. But let me tell you, it's not unique for a young girl of marriageable age to get pregnant. We probably all know at least one without benefit of marriage. That's not a sign. There's nothing miraculous about that That happens every day. But this is clearly a sign. A virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son. But that son is going to be named Emmanuel, God with us. So he's born. He has true humanity, but he is also the incarnation of God. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says the same thing. A child is born, human birth. He's a human being. Unto us a son is given. Now this was written by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah around 700 B.C., so, this, this is a long time before, before Jesus comes on the scene, 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. This is like, like for, in our time frame, this would be before Columbus discovered America. That long ago. Precise prediction. And that he's called Mighty God, and he's called the Father of Eternity. So, this human being that's born is also God, clearly seen from the Old Testament. Philippians states it this way that he was in the form of God, verse 6. But he didn't consider it robbery or something to grab hold of, to be equal to God. The form of God means that he had the essence of God. He was fully God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He took on humanity, added humanity to his person, entered into human history, and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, in early church history, they had to wrestle with this. Who was Jesus? And that's a big question for people. Who was Jesus? And and one of the early church formulations, the Bible is very clear. Jesus is fully God, but and he's also fully man. But how do you put that together? That's an analytical question that really wasn't asked or started to be asked until the late third century. Who was Jesus? How do you put this together? And in the early church, there was a heresy called Arianism. And in Arianism, they believed that Jesus was a creature that God created eons ago in eternity past but he was still a, a creature so you have eternity past God always exists he's eternal but at some time in eternity past he he created Christ and then Christ later came to the earth uh, and later there were other cre- creatures that were created but Christ is the first but he's a creature and the early early church, they, this caused such a division in the early church because there was this older deacon by the name of Arius who went around singing little, little, little contemporary choruses saying that there was a time when Christ was not, which means he's a creature. And everybody likes these little ditties, and so everybody sang these little contemporary Christian choruses, and everybody got led down the primrose path to heresy. And it was splitting the empire, and Constantine had just become the emperor, and he didn't want his empire all split apart, so he called for all the bishops to come to a little town outside of uh, modern Istanbul called Nicaea and said, okay, we're going to hash this out. Now, you, ha- you had 118 bishops show up. And three of them understood the issues, and they were the heretics. Uh, and three of them understood the issues, and they were orthodox, and nobody else had a clue. Uh, but when it was all over with, and they formulated the statement, 116 of the 118 all said, this is right. And what they said is, Jesus is not a creature. He is true God of true God. He's eternal. He has all the attributes of God. He is fully God. But that didn't solve all the questions, because now that you say, what was Jesus before he came, you have to answer the question is, what was Jesus when he came? And that's the issue of the hypostatic union. And there were three different views that popped up as people tried to put this together. And the first was a guy named Apollinarius. And Apollinarius came along and said, well, in terms of human beings, we have three parts. We have a a human body, we have a human soul, and we have a human spirit. So Jesus is going to be something like that, but let's just, he, let's come up with this idea. He's got a human body, but he has, he's the Logos. He's got a divine soul. But then he has a human spirit, which means he's not really truly man, because he doesn't have a human soul. But he's not really fully God. He's kind of in between. So the whole issue with Apollinarianism uh, didn't work, and, and they pushed the button. and went, mm, if that's your final answer, you lost. You're out of here. Okay. Then the next guy to come along and to try to win the contest was Nestorius. And Nestorius said, okay, here's the deal. Jesus has a divine nature, and he has a human nature. He has a, he's a divine person and a human person. He's got two natures and two persons. And they don't mix at all. There's no unity. He's just like a, like he has multiple personality syndrome. And the buzzer came, mm, that's your final answer. You're out of here. Third guy to take a shot at it was a guy named Eutychus. And he said, okay, if he's not two natures and two persons, then we'll just put him in the mix master and blend up his deity and his humanity. And it's going to be completely Uh, mixed together. So they're blended. So he's not fully God and he's not fully man. He's just this third something. And once again, got the buzzer, you're out of here. That's not the answer. So when they came to understand who Jesus was, they understood that he was fully God and fully man, united together in one, as one person. He had a human nature he had a divine nature, but he was one person united together in the person of Jesus Christ. And that was resolved at a council called Chalcedon in, in 381. So this is who Jesus is. But people want to reject Jesus for a lot of different ways. I just want to briefly give you six reasons why people reject Jesus. First of all, they reject Jesus because he doesn't fit their preconceptions. This was a problem we saw back in Matthew 11 when Jesus is challenging and confronting uh, the Jews, he said, y- you, you, you played a tune and you wanted to have a marriage, a wedding ceremony, but we didn't want to dance to that tune. He's talking about himself and John the Baptist. So then you said, well, let's play funeral dirge. And so they played a funeral dirge and we didn't want to play funeral dirge. So, um, so we were out. Uh, We didn't fit your preconceived notions. You expected a political Messiah. That's not what you're getting, so you rejected us. It was preconceived notions. That's the same thing happening in Nazareth. They had a preconceived idea of what the Messiah would be, and that's what a lot of people think. They say, okay, I have an idea of what God should be like, and I have an idea of what, if we're going to need a Savior, what He should be like, but the Bible doesn't fit that, so I'm going to reject it because they know it all, right? They're omniscient, so they know what, it should be. And so that's one reason why a lot of people uh, reject re- reject Jesus. Scripture says that Jesus had a greater witness than John the Baptist and that his works demonstrated that. Uh, yet, despite all of his miracles, the Jews still wanted to have a sign. That's what they kept saying. They wanted to have a sign. And this was uh, has always been a problem, even Paul in Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 says the Jews seek for a sign, but the Greeks look for wisdom. And Jesus is saying, I'm God, I'm not dancing to your tune. I will give you enough evidence to prove I'm who I am, but I'm not going to do every little crazy thing that you want me to do just because you ultimately just want to be like Gideon. You want to find something that you think I can't do so that you can reject it. Second reason people reject Christ is they don't like the exclusivity of Christianity. They don't like Christians who say there's only one way to God. But Christians didn't say that. God said that. And see, they're just as exclusive. They're going to say there's a hundred, every way goes to God. So let's say there's a hundred ways. All roads lead to God. Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Zoroastrianism, everything leads to God. Now, if they hold that position, then essentially what they're saying is if that that's really what Christianity says, which means they've distorted Christianity. But we have to be honest, and Christianity does say there's only one way, and that's Jesus. He died on the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. That's pretty exclusive. Noah said the same thing. He said there's only one way to survive the flood, and that's go through the one door on the ark. The Bible is always exclusive, but people also come along and they say, well, okay, we're gonna, if you're going to be that way, Christian, then then you can't say, you can't hold to your Christianity. If every way leads to God, and you're saying that there's only one way that leads to God, which is Jesus, then we're going to reject you. Isn't that being exclusive? You are excluding Christians. So ultimately, the people who say, I don't like Christianity because it's exclusive, are in fact being exclusive. They're excluding Christianity. That's what's called the blindness of arrogance. And the irrationality of arrogance. So, uh, people who reject Christ because they uh, reject the exclusivity of Christians really have another problem, and that's really the third reason why people reject Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus because they just don't want to. They just don't want to. And this is what Jesus says in, to the to his audience in John five forty. He says, "You're not willing to come to me that you may have life. You're not willing. You just don't want it, and you've made your decision." For whatever reason, and there are a lot of reasons other than the six I'm talking about, people just don't want to trust in Christ. A fourth common reason is that some people don't want to because they, uh, they don't want to admit they're a sinner and in need of salvation. And that's just called arrogance, and it's called a failure to understand sin. We're not sinners because we sin. The Bible says we're sinners because we're born that way. We sin because we're sinners. Adam's the one who sinned. We're condemned because of Adam's sin, and that corrupted him, and so everything that he produced biologically is corrupted. Uh, That DNA from Adam goes through everybody, and we're just all all corrupted, and so it's no big deal to say you're a sinner because everybody sin is anything that violates the standard of God, whether it's thought, word, or something we say. So they don't want to admit they're a sinner, and some people are just downright convicted if they're in the presence of a sinner, I read a story, short version. Billy Graham was playing golf with, with uh, Nixon. So they had to have a couple of other players, so they got a couple of pros in there. And one of the pros just came back just griping, complaining, angry, throwing his clubs in the clubhouse. Somebody said, what's the problem? He said, I had to play golf with Billy Graham today. I said, I can't stand all that religion. The guy said, what did he say? Nothing. What do you mean nothing? He said, Nothing. He didn't have to. I know what he stands for, and that made me mad all day long, and I played a lousy game. That's the reality. Just because you and I exist as Christians, and people know that we believe that the Bible is true means they hate us because they're convicted. They don't know what to do with the guilt and the their own knowledge of their own of their own sin. But Scripture says we're all sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God, but that's okay, because Jesus paid the penalty, and through faith alone in him, you don't have to do anything. He cleanses us from sin, and we have eternal life. Fifth reason is because people have been deceived by false teaching. Whether it's philosophy, whether it's religion, whether it's their own screwed up ideas, people are deceived, and ultimately, that's a reflection of the deception of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, and they don't believe. That's it. Satan blinds us through giving us all these religions and philosophies and ideas, and they and they don't work. A lot of times people have to work through that that 's what James talked about. I remember those days when he and Laura would go out on a date. That date consists of sitting down in front of a computer, pulling up the website from Institute for Creation Research, and reading through their answers to these questions like, well, what about dinosaurs, and what about the kangaroos, and and how did uh, the Grand Canyon get formed? And that's what they would talk about. And eventually I would get questions like, well, James said this, and I didn't know what the answer was, I couldn't find it. What do you say? Uh, we went through those things. But people need to know answers. And that's not wrong with giving them answers. I think somewhere in the Bible, somewhere they say that we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Second, or First Peter three fifteen something like that. Okay, last reason. People, some people, don't trust Christ because they're afraid of what other people will think about them. You know that's really a a poor reason to do or not do anything. Is you're worried about what other people will say. But this happens in in the Bible. Look at this in John chapter twelve. Now this is talking about those who are believers. But it's true for unbelievers. Nevertheless, we're told in John twelve forty two, many among the rulers, many of the Pharisees believed in Jesus. So that means they were saved. But because of the Pharisees, because, the, because of family, because of social pressure, because of what some friends might think about them, because of what some uh, people who they thought were intelligent would think about them, they didn't confess him. In other words, they didn't make it publicly known. They were just what somebody used to call a secret service Christian. Only God knew for sure. They were believers, but they didn't want anybody else to know it. And they're still believers. They're still going to heaven. When we share the gospel with people, I find that at times, especially if you've talked to them for a while, took James, I think, about a year. We had um, Jim Speedy was here in this congregation for, for many years. He did the same thing. You know, one day all of a sudden he's talking like he's a Christian. And James was like the same way. He said, well, "Wait a minute, what's going on?" Well, trust in Christ, but I really didn't want you to know because I wanted to make sure it was true. And uh, I've heard that story many, many times. But over the course of time, a good question to ask some people is just, "What's keeping you from trusting in Jesus? Why do you reject Him?" And then let's talk about those answers, because a lot of times people have heard things, wrong things, screwy things. They've listened to the Discovery Channel, the History Channel way too much, and they've heard all this stuff, and they just want answers. They don't want to think that if I become a Christian, I'm going to put my brain in neutral, and and I'm just going to become some robot. That's not true. Some of the most, the most intelligent, articulate, scholarly, academic professors I ever had in school were the people I had as professors in seminary. They put the professors, the PhDs I had in undergraduate work to shame. I mean, they were more organized. They had two, in some cases, three PhDs, not only from Dallas Seminary, but Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, all kinds of places. They were intelligent men, well-educated men, and they had answers. It's not, so, so we have to study the facts. Sometimes that takes a while because when people are smart, they want to know the answers. And we are to what? Give an answer for the hope that is within us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded of your uh, goodness to us in providing us salvation, something we can't do. But you sent a Savior. You had a plan. It took uh, almost 4,000 years to prepare the human race for that plan and to provide the Savior that you prophesied about and promised about for those 4,000 years. And he appeared and he fulfilled all the prophecies related to salvation and to the messianic work of salvation. And he fulfilled all those types, all those pictures, all those images and paid the penalty for our sin. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that there's anyone listening today who's never trusted Christ as Savior, who is not sure about their eternal destiny, not confident about where they're going, that they would... Uh, recognize from what the Bible says that there's only one sure and certain answer, and that is Jesus Christ. He provides life. He provides hope. He provides blessing. Only through him do we have a relationship with you, and only in a relationship with you do we have real life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.